we need to be ready to study the Word tonight. We have a lot to cover, so let's uh, bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed your Word to us. You've given us so much detail, so much information, so much to help us to understand who you are and what your plan and purposes are for mankind, and we fit within that. And so often when we study prophecy, it's tempting to think that this just has to do with the future, but it shapes our understanding of what's happening today, drives and motivates our decisions today because we understand uh, where history is going, that every detail has meaning and purpose, and it relates to our own spiritual life and the role we play as members of the church in your overall plan. Father, we... Pray that as we study your word tonight that we'll be challenged by what we learn, that we'll see again how every uh, part of the Scripture fits together perfectly as further evidence that this is your word, not the word of man, and that it is clear that you have revealed it specifically to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to quickly review the first part of the chapter just so we understand the thrust It is in Revelation chapter 12 that we see the strongest chapter in the Scripture that talks about the satanic attack against Israel and that a primary part of that attack has been anti-Semitism down through the ages. And sometime I'll do a special on anti-Semitism, but now is not the time. We see that first in uh, verses 1 and 2, has outlined the role the nation, the people of Israel have, the corporate entity of Israel having God's plan. Now, Sunday morning, when I'm going through this little series and discussing Revelation 10, I am using this phrase, corporate Israel, and that may be a new term for some of you. But corporate Israel means treating Israel as an entity because they are viewed scripturally as a corporate group of people, a national ethnic group that are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was to that group that promises were made. And see, most of you still operate on a certain measure of cosmic thinking in that you think everything is all about individuals because we come out of an individualistic American culture. But the Bible isn't all about individuals. It is about groups. It's about the church. It talks about the church as a body of believers, that we are members of one another. Now, if you go to some other cultures, that's not a hard thing to grasp because everybody's so dependent on each other. But in America, where we've grown up with this isolated, individualistic mentality, we have a hard time understanding this corporate thing and this emphasis on a group and God's plan for groups as opposed to individuals. We think only in terms of individuals, but it's just one big team. And God has promised certain things to that big team. And there are going to be some players on the Israel team that are going to get kicked off because they never were really team players. And that's what Paul says in Romans 9, that not all Israel is Israel. So we, we see this emphasis in 12.1 and 2 about the corporate entity of Israel 
that is illustrated by the crown of 12 stars and the sun and the moon, emphasizing that imagery out of Genesis 37. And she's with child. It is Israel. It is the nation. It's the corporate people, that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob entity that gives birth eventually to the Messiah. See, it's just treated as that, as that group. The pain and giving birth has to do with all the suffering they went through down through history. Then we see the attack of Satan, the red dragon, and his kingdom. The kingdoms of man are the kingdom of Satan. He works his way through the political entities of human history, including the United States. We are not any different. We're all part of that whole flow of the kingdom of man and the culture of man, as patriotic as we are and as much we, as we love our country, we have to recognize it's part of the cosmic system, just as every other nation in history. You can uh, see wonderful things of, in Rome, wonderful things in the history of, of England, wonderful things in other nations' histories, but ultimately they all boil down to the bestiality of the kingdoms of man that are all used as pawns by Satan. The seven heads represent the historic train of kingdoms, five that were, one that is, one that will be. The five that were had to do with those anti-Semitic nations, the nations that persecuted Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece in the past, Rome at the time Paul was writing, and then the uh, future revived Roman Empire. The future revived Roman Empire is made up of a confederation of ten nations. That's the ten horns. And that we studied that last time. Then we see the, uh, the uh, army that Satan has, a third of the stars of heaven, that is a third of the angels are with him. He throws them to the earth, sends them to the earth to be part of his attack against uh, Israel. And he seeks to destroy the Messiah, verse uh, 4. We've looked at that in some detail, and let me see, and we skip down to verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness, Now I'm going to say more about this uh, as we get into the heart of what I'm going to talk on tonight, but just to review this last night, the woman goes into the wilderness, this is when is the, the Jews who believe Jesus leave at the midpoint of the tribulation when they see the abomination of desolation. And she will be nourished there. That is the idea. God will take care of her for that 1,260 days of the second half of the tribulation period. And we believe this is down in an area in southern Jordan called uh, Petra. And Petra is near another place called Basra mentioned in the Old Testament. Matthew 24:15 is where Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place... Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, notice he doesn't say those who are in the United States, those that are in England, those that are in France, those that are in Egypt, those that are anywhere else in the world, those that are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Now, the only reason a Jew will flee to the mountains when they see the abomination of desolation in the holy place is because they know that Jesus said this and they believe that he knew what he was talking about. And so I believe that for the most part, 
there may be some children or a few family members that get drugged along out into the wilderness at that time who aren't saved at that point, but probably 95, 98% of the Jews that hit the road at that point to go into the wilderness in the south of Judah and to head over towards Basra will be saved. That's part of what I'm emphasizing in the study on Sunday morning. They will be justified already. They will be uh, believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And yet the nation doesn't get, quote, saved as a nation until Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. So they're justified, but they're not, the nation's not saved yet. And that's what we'll get to in our study in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 10. So Jesus makes it very clear that this is going to be the worst scenario in history and pray that you won't be in a position where uh, you're very vulnerable, such as being pregnant. And if you, it's going to be so bad that for those who are doing something else, they need to just immediately drop everything and leave. And I believe in many Scholars believe that where they go is Basra. Basra is mentioned, and we'll see the verses in a minute, many times in the Old Testament as a place where there is a tremendous battle that takes place, and the Messiah comes back with his robes drenched in blood. Now, the word Basra is a Hebrew word meaning sheepfold, and a sheepfold is a place where the sheep are kept and protected by the shepherd from the enemies. And so Petra is a space, place that will uniquely provide this because of the way it's constructed down in the, this extremely rugged desert area in the southern part of, uh, of Jordan down to the southeast of the Dead Sea. Isaiah 34 6 talks about a sacrifice in Basra. We'll look at these verses again uh, before we're done tonight. This is a map showing the location of Basra. I've seen different maps depict the location of Basra to Petra in different ways. Some think it's just north of Petra, some south of Petra, some west of Petra, or east of Petra, whether uh, as this map would have it, uh, it would be a little east of where Petra is, but it's all down in this extremely rugged area down in what was historically the territory of Edom. And see, Jerusalem is way up here to the, um, way up here to the, to the north. So it's a long way to go from Jerusalem down to Basra. And this is really tough territory through the southern Judean desert, excuse me, as we'll see. And then here's another map, modern map showing its location in the southern part, part of Jordan. And here's an aerial shot that gives you some idea of the uh, desert area. All of those tans and browns are deep desert. When we came back from there on that first trip two or three years ago and crossed the border further south, just at the bottom of the, uh, of the map here, way down in this southern area at Elat, when we crossed over from the Jordan side to the Israel side, there was a Shiraka wind blowing off of the Judean desert, and the temperature was, what, 119 with a wind chill of 140. It was like walking into a hairdryer, and it was miserable. So that is the 
kind of territory there, but I believe God will remarkably provide for them and has promised such in these promises. Now, another set of verses that are very important for understanding this, and I'm not going to read all of them. We'll hit them again tonight. Isaiah 63, 1 through 5 talks about this, that this question is, who's this who's coming out of Edom Edom, with dyed garments from Basra? His garments are pictured as dyed red with blood. This is the one who's glorious in his apparel. This is uh, the Messiah. Verse 2 says, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? That same imagery is used of a winepress, God uh, trotting out his anger in the winepress in Revelation uh, 17 and 18. Then um, his blood is sprinkled on his garments in verse 3. The day of This is at the time of his day of vengeance in verse 4. That puts it clearly in the tribulation uh, period when God is bringing about his judgment on all of the nations. Uh, Jeremiah 49.22 is another verse that mentions uh, Basra. Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. This is a picture of protection. Uh, God is going to watch over these Jews who have obeyed him and have fled to the wilderness. And he is going to uh, provide for all of their needs. Now, the next verse in uh, Revelation 12 is Revelation 12:7 that speaks of the war in heaven. And at this time, this is after the midpoint of the tribulation, or and very close to it, the angelic conflict in heaven reaches this boiling point, and the elect angels, the holy angels, defeat the angels of Satan, the fallen angels, and they are finally and permanently thrown out of heaven and are thrown down to the earth. Verse 7 says there's war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. So this is another key passage on Satan being the dragon and also that the that those who follow Satan are uh, angels. And they are cast out. Verse 8 says they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place for, found for them in heaven. Now, this tells me that they had access to heaven back and forth, still do today. Job speaks of them, these various assemblies that meet before God, challenging believers on earth. But it's not until this point that they're permanently cast out. And I think from the imagery in Scripture, you could go two ways. One is they just have an intense but it's still invisible impact on human history, or that it becomes a visible presence on the earth. And I tend to think it becomes a visible presence on the earth, just like their presence was visible prior to Noah's flood. And it is because at the end of this last half of the tribulation that God brings final judgment on all of the demons and unbelievers and all of those who have been arrayed against him in history. This is where all of it is brought together. All of the rebellious creatures are, as it were, isolated in one kill zone, and they are going to be taken out at the end of the tribulation uh, period. Verse 9 is the verse that tells us that uh, Satan is the serpent that was in the garden, 
also called the devil, and he is the one who deceives the whole world. And he is thrown down to the earth, and his angels are thrown down or cast down with him. Then in verses 10 and 11 we read, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Once again, this is a proleptic use of the uh, aorist tense here. It is anticipating the future as if it is a present reality. Because with this ejection of Satan and the demons from heaven, it is now a certainty that the end of history is upon us and that the judgment of Satan is about to happen. And that's what's explained in the rest of the verse. For the accuser, and the term there for accuser is kategor, where we get our word category. It's kategor. It has to do with one who categorizes uh, uh, categorizes uh, uh, indictments against somebody, accusing them of various crimes, listing out those indictments. It is the Greek word that is a translation of the Hebrew word satan, which means the same kind of thing. So the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses, the kategoron, accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, that is, because they believed Jesus died on the cross for their sins. That's what the, the meaning of the blood of the Lamb is. We've seen that in our study of, of uh, Hebrews, that the imagery of the blood is a picture of death. And the Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the favorite term used 27 times, I believe, in the book of Revelation for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, They overcame him, that is, those on the earth, the saints, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So it will be a horrible time when hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers, lose their life because they have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Verse 12, we read, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That is, the elect angels. Woe to the earth. This is the announcement of an intensified curse. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. This is the time of Satan's final temper tantrum in history. Because he knows he only has a short time, so he's going to try to do as much damage as he can. And the focal point of his energy is on the Jews. Because he he knows he has a short time, but his goal is to destroy all of the Jews before God can fulfill his final promises to the Jews. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So there's going to be an intensification of anti-Semitism in the uh, last part of the tribulation. We see that today. It's increasing more and more. We have the uh, rise uh, in power of Iran and Ahmadinejad, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that are going on there and uh, some of the things that are <clears throat> legislatively that are uh, up before uh, the Senate and the House to try to further uh, restrict uh, Iran. 
But we have to take this guy very seriously, and my problem is that I don't think a lot of people do. He is very much like Hitler was in the 20s, breathing threats against the Jews, but people don't think he can really mean what he says. Oh, he won't really do that. He's just saying that. But this is inherent in especially Shia uh, Islamic belief, and he must be taken extremely seriously. So verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the child. So the woman is Israel, corporate Israel. It's the remnant. This is not necessarily every involving, let me unsaved Jews, but it is the remnant, those who are true Israel of Israel. And in verse 14 we read that two wings of the great eagle... There we go. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so somehow she is able to fly. Now, this could be an airlift. Uh, I don't think it is speaking about that. I think it's speaking of the fact that God is going to supernaturally protect her in her flight. We've used the word to fly, to flee from uh, danger many times as an idiom without, uh, before we had the ability to fly in airplanes that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. That, again, is the same period of time, three and a half years. So in both instances now, we've had a reference to this three-and-a-half-year period. Earlier, it was the 1,260 days. Here, it's time, times, and a half a time. Now, the reason I point that out is, and I know this can get confusing for people, but uh, recently, and some of you were there at pre-trib a couple of years ago, one of the presenters said that these terms, three time times and a half a time, refers to the first half of the tribulation, and 1,320 days refers to the second half. I don't think that's true. I think they refer to different aspects of, the, of whatever it's talking about in terms of what God is doing. But in this chapter, it shows that it's two different, the two terms are used synonymously to refer to God's protection of Israel. So I don't think you can make a real strong case for a lot of distinction between those terms based on the usage, uh, usage here. And this is why this final half of the tribulation is going to be such a horrible time for Israel. In fact, in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, we read that, for, uh, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. There's no period of violence in history like this. How can a preterist come along and say that all of this was fulfilled in AD 70? Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's no time like this in history. Jeremiah 37, no time like this in history. Revelation says there's no time like this, no war like this in history. It is the worst conflagration in all of history. But it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Why is it called the time of Jacob's trouble? Jacob always was used to speak of the, shall we say, the disobedient side of Isaac and Isaac is usually used, I mean of Israel, and the term Israel is usually used to refer to uh, the nation when it is in obedience. 
And so this is used to refer to Jacob's trouble because it's emphasizing the fact that at the beginning of this time they have been in disobedience. They have been under a curse, under judgment, since they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. We'll see Sunday morning, I'm going to still tie some of this together, in Matthew 12, probably uh, different from how most of you have been taught on the unforgivable sin, that the unforgivable sin was a generational sin, and it was a Jewish sin. It could not be committed by anybody else in history, and it was the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And the unforgiving part of that isn't eternal unforgiveness. It is temporal, because at that point they have reached the last straw, and Jesus is announcing almost a point of no return for the nation, that because you have rejected the kingdom offer, you've rejected uh, Jesus as your Messiah, God is going to take the nation out under the curse of the fifth cycle of discipline. And it's almost irreversible at that point that 70 A.D. will come about. And that means that Israel is under, the Jews are under that curse to the present time and until the end of the tribulation period when that curse will be taken away, as we will see. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the last pressure point of judgment from God to bring them literally to the cross and to trust in Jesus as their Messiah. Now, skip ahead a couple of slides to this one. Revelation 12:15 says, "So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood." Now, I take it that this is not talking about literal water, but this is using imagery here of an of comparing a military attack to a flood. And so the the imagery of a flood, a huge number of people chasing after Israel into the wilderness is what this is talking about, to destroy the last of the Jews. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. And so at this point, the earth is, taught, is, is literal. I believe there will be an earthquake that will swallow up the armies of the Antichrist chasing the Jews at this point, much as the earth opened up and swallowed uh, the rebellious Jews who were following Korah and his rebellion in the wilderness. And so this all takes place at the, towards the end of the tribulation period. And to understand all of this, we have to understand something about the final military campaign that occurs in the last part of the tribulation called the campaign of Armageddon. It's not a battle such as uh, the battle of San Jacinto was a a battle, an 18-minute battle, or the battle of the Alamo, which lasted for 13 days. It might be more like the siege of Stalingrad, but it's going to last even longer than that. And it involves various stages. Now, most of us... When we've been taught anything about the campaign of Armageddon, we basically got the idea that the Antichrist is going to bring his coalition of military into Israel, and the battle is going to take place 
at Armageddon. And at Armageddon, the blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle, and it, and then Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives, and from there he will defeat the Antichrist. And that's not exactly right. It's partially right, but it is uh, not really right. There's a lot more to it than that when you put together all of the various passages in the Scripture. It is a lengthy military campaign that has eight specific stages. And so what I'm going to do is put a map up here, and we're going to, to begin by listing the eight stages. And then I will go through each one of the eight stages to explain it. So when I go through this and I get to point eight and I advance to the next slide, don't yelp, we're going to go back through them one at a time. Okay? I'm just giving you an overview. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. Then I'm going to take it apart piece by piece, and then we'll summarize it at the end. There are eight stages, as you see in the map. The first stage is takes place with the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist at the Valley of Armageddon, or the Valley of Megiddo, called Har Megiddo in the Hebrew, which is the Valley of the Mount of Megiddo, and that is where the, the um, uh, number one is right up here. And then the second thing that happens is the Antichrist capital is in literal Babylon, and that will be rebuilt. And there is an assault, an attack on Babylon that is finally and completely destroyed. Those prophecies about the final and complete destruction of Babylon from the Old Testament, like Isaiah 13, have never, never uh, been fulfilled. So he sees the smoke on the horizon, and he knows his time is up, so he attacks Jerusalem from the north down through what is now the West Bank, and he will attack Jerusalem and pretty much wipe out and devastate Jerusalem, and the descriptions of that in the Scripture are pretty horrid. Now, the Jews have escaped down to uh, Petra or Basra down here in the desert, and so he is going to send his armies after the Jews at Petra, the armies of the Antichrist uh, at Basra. And then... This is when Israel will turn and call upon the Lord to deliver them as a nation. So this is talking about Israel's rebirth as a nation, their corporate regeneration. Remember I said they're already justified. They're already individually regenerated. This is talking about the nation as a whole. This is when the curse from Matthew 12 is lifted. And I'll show you that as we go through these passages. Then there will be a, then the Lord is going to return at the second coming of Christ. He returns to Basra to deliver them there. And then he will lead them up from Basra with the tribe of Judah in front up through the southern uh, Judean desert back to Jerusalem and the valley of Jehoshaphat, where the battle will end. And there he will gather them at the valley of Jehoshaphat, and that will be the judgment where several judgments at the end of the tribulation will take place. And then there will be his victory ascent 
up the Mount of Olives. So those are the eight stages that take place in the campaign of Armageddon. So now let's go to look at the first one. But first I want to give you a map from the giving a good overview of the ancient world. And you see on the right, Babylon is located with a circle around it. And on the left, you have Megiddo circled. And if you notice, Megiddo is almost exactly on the same longitude as, or is that latitude, same latitude as Babylon. Isn't that interesting? Due west of Babylon. And so the Antichrist, whose headquarters is in Babylon, is going to send his armies there, and it is on the plain of Esdralon, the valley also known as the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of the Mount of Megiddo, that his forces will gather as a staging area. And if you look at the next map, you will see that up there just above the yellow box, which marks the area of the Valley of, the valley of Esdralon, right up here you have the city of Haifa. This is the only natural harbor in Israel. So it makes sense that as you ship military personnel and supplies into Israel, you will take them in through the harbor at Haifa, and that just feeds directly into the northwest end of the Valley of Esdralon. And so this is where you're going to collect all of your equipment and organize all of your forces uh, for your invasion. So he sends his army there, and this is where they collect to attack uh, Jerusalem and to destroy the last remnants of the Jews. Now, Let's talk a little bit about this valley. Here's a map that gives you a pretty good understanding of the area. The Valley of Esdralon is a very long valley, and down the middle of the valley runs the Kishon River. This is the same river that Elijah draws water from to soak the altar because what marks the ridgeline on the upper northwest corner here. This whole ridge is the ridge of Mount Carmel. And so the Kishon River is that river. It's also the river that apparently flash floods during the battle of Deborah and Barak against the Canaanites in Judges chapter 5 and 6. And God uses that flood to wipe out the, uh, wipe out the Canaanite cavalry there. Uh, Chariot Corps, rather. So that is that area. It is a huge area, and this is a satellite topographical map that gives a lot of detail, but you see how wide it is. This is looking from the southwest. North is sort of towards the upper left corner. And so from Haifa all the way across almost to the Jordan River, almost to, uh, actually that right end is where Mount Gilboa is located, and that's where uh, Saul uh, killed himself after he was defeated by the Philistines. And that whole valley is the Jezreel Valley. Now, I took a series of photographs several years ago and managed to put them together to give you a panorama shot 
from Mount Carmel. This is we're up. At, I'm up at the monastery there on the site where uh, is the traditional site where Elijah uh, did battle with the priests of Baal. Looking down into the valley, the Kishon River runs along the uh, the base of Carmel Ridge there, and you can look out and see how large and wide this valley is. If you can see things, you can pick out Mount Tabor, which is where uh, Deborah and Barak gathered their forces. You can also make out the Hill of Mora, which is where uh, Gideon's 300 uh, defeated the uh, Midianites there. On the far end, you have Mount Gilboa. And just on the horizon, you have Nazareth. So everything that happens in the Old Testament, or a lot of it happens in this uh, in this general uh, general vicinity, in the early 1800s, when Napoleon brought his troops through the Middle East, he said of this valley that all of the armies of the world could gather there to do battle. It is an enormous place. So this is the staging area where all the supplies are going to be laid in for the assault on the Jews. The next thing that happens is while the Antichrist is gearing up for battle, he hears a rumor from the east that Babylon is being destroyed, and he looks towards the horizon, and he sees the smoke ascending, and Babylon is finally and ultimately destroyed. Now, historically, in among dispensationalists, you were like, uh, like myself. You grew up hearing that Babylon... In Revelation, really wasn't talking about literal Babylon. Babylon was talking about Rome. It was a code word. We call that non-literal interpretation. In the 80s, it began. A lot of dispensationalists began to study this and realize that the Old Testament prophecies about the complete, final, total destruction of Babylon had never truly been fulfilled. The Old Testament prophesied that the site of Babylon would be completely uninhabitable. But there's always been uh, Arabs and two or three small villages on the site of ancient Babylon all through the, the centuries. It's never been uninhabited. It's always been, um, been inhabited. And so it, that has never been fulfilled. If you want to hear a, a good uh, detailed study of this, uh, Andy Woods, did a paper at the Chafer Conference on this, and you can listen to that or watch the DVD. did an excellent job going through all of the passages showing that uh, Babylon has to be understood as literal Babylon. Back in the 1980s, Saddam Hussein began to rebuild Babylon. And I have a number of pictures that somebody listening to uh, the ministry sent me. I don't have any idea who this was anymore sent me a bunch of great pictures he had taken when he was stationed there in Iraq and got a little opportunity to go patrol around um, Babylon. And so Babylon is partially rebuilt. Saddam Hussein never finished it. He had great festivals there, loved to go there and party, uh, but it is not finished. But we believe that this place will be finished and will become an economic heartbeat for the future kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, in Revelation chapter 18, we read, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, 
and the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. It will be the blackest of Black Mondays. may not be a Monday, but you know what I mean. The stock market everywhere will crash, and there will be no recovery. Everything will be lost. Isaiah 13 prophesied it this way, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's interesting. You go down along the Dead Sea, and you really can't find much of what was left of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing has lived there. It is a barren wasteland. But that's not true of the modern site of ancient Babylon. And verse 20 says, she will never be inhabited. Never means never. And it's been inhabited most of the time since Babylon gradually just died out as a, as a, as a city in the early part of the church age. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But Arabs have been there up to the present and Shepherds rest their flocks there up to the present. So this hasn't been fulfilled. Then Jeremiah states in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 1, and verses 39 to 40, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, thus, this is the word of the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet concerning Babylon. So desert creatures and hyenas will live there, and there the owl will dwell. It will never again be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah along with their neighboring towns, declares the Lord, so no one will live there, no man will dwell in it. So that's never happened. Uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 24 states, Before your eyes I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion. Iraq is going to be wiped out at that point at the end of the tribulation. Then the third stage in the campaign for Armageddon is the fall of Jerusalem. And so the Antichrist will invade from the north, coming down from the valley of Harmageddo to attack and destroy Jerusalem. And so this site that we have here of modern Jerusalem, it's a city of about 700,000 that is spread out over numerous hills, will be pretty much wiped out and laid waste by the assaults of the Antichrist. Zechariah 12.2 says, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will be also be against Judah. So it is an attack on this area. It's interesting that it is the West Bank is Samaria, ancient Samaria, but most of the southern part, a good bit of the southern part, is still in the hands of the Jews outside of the area around uh, Hebron and uh, Bethlehem. In Zechariah 12, verse 3, we read, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, 
And Zechariah 12.3 and 12.4 states, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then in Zechariah 14, verse 2, we read, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. I noticed that we've got to work on, who's back there, Eddie? We have to work on this. I'm using this new program for the presentations, and for some reason, if you see, it cuts off the right edge. I don't know. It's not cut off on the computer, so if there's something in the proportion that's, that we got to work on. Um, then we come to the fourth stage, that the Antichrist will march to Petra. So he's pursuing the Jews down through Judea, the southern part of, of, of Israel, and across south of the Dead Sea into that barren wasteland around Petra and Basra. Now here's a satellite picture of, the, of this area. Up here in the upper left-hand corner, you have the Dead Sea. See, it's, it's dropping at a rate of about 20 feet a year. I mean, it's just a mate, or is it 20, 20 inches a year? 20 inches a year. And, and you see all of this area down, all the way down to here, was at one time uh, underwater. But it's not anymore. And this is a tremendous concern for everyone. One of the reasons it's going down is because so many of the countries upstream on the Jordan are siphoning water out of the Jordan River for irrigation, that you don't have as much water flowing down into the Dead Sea. It's the lowest uh, lowest point on Earth, and the water is the saltiest on Earth. And every year when we go there, you always get a chance to go float in the Dead Sea because you just can't sink. It's like, I'm, it, it, it's, it's thick like brake fluid. Uh, you, and, and it doesn't smell real good either, but you... They have showers so you can get in and get out, but they extract, the Jews extract all kinds of chemicals, have a huge chemical industry down along the Dead Sea for extracting these chemicals from the, from the water. But anyway, you can see how inhospitable this area is. It is rugged desert territory, and there is little there uh, to commend it. Now, when they, when the they take Jews take off from Jerusalem. There's a picture of Betty in the foreground, but you can see across. You can see the valley behind her, and then right across, you see a, a a valley and a split, and then a mountain on the far side. That mountain on the far side is just above Bethlehem, and then the Judean desert begins after that. So you just head right out of Jerusalem. They'll go that way. Mount of Olives is on the left. Um, and they'll head south into the Judean desert, and this is what it looks like. This is just south of Bethlehem, and this picture is taken from the top of the Herodian, which is where uh, Herod the Great had built one of his uh, palaces. And they will continue to head south through the Judean desert until they cross over into uh, the southern part of Jordan into the area around Petra. Lovely territory, isn't it? Just looks so hospitable, easy to get around, and there'll be a lot of different ways 
in which people will go. Most of them will walk. Some may go by camel. I met a lady at the APAC conference who had come out. She was born in Baghdad, and her family was able to escape from Iran in 1958 by uh, bribing some Bedouins. And so when she was three and a half years old, she escaped from Iraq to Iran on a camel. But there will be different ways in which people go in. They can go by horse and many other ways as they go into um, Petra. And as they enter Petra, this is a city that was built, and they estimate the population down there at one time was 20,000. So, and it could be much larger. They've only uh, actually excavated and uncovered about 15% of the area. And there are huge cisterns already built to collect water, and many other uh, ancient systems can be easily restored so that the people can be preserved for that period of three and a half years. Again, here is another map locating Basra down here to the far southeast of the Dead Sea. Now, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 49, 13 through 14, For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become perpetual ruins. I've heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. And this is what will be fulfilled. This is the nations gathering against Basra. So Israel at that time, surrounded and about to be defeated, will cry out to God for help. This is the fifth stage in the campaign of Armageddon. Now, this is what I believe occurs that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23, 39. At that point, just before he went to the cross, just before he entered into the Olivet Discourse, which focuses on prophecy, he said, For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just before this, he had entered into Jerusalem in the name of the Lord, riding on a uh, the foal of a donkey as the king welcomed. They were singing Hosanna to the Lord. But then you have the rejection by the, the trial by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and on that uh, the next couple of days after he entered into Jerusalem. They reject him. They're already conspiring against him to uh, have, him, have him killed. And so he says he will not come again until they as a nation welcome him and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, you had a nation there at that time as an entity, but there were many individuals in that national entity who were justified, who accepted him as the Messiah. The disciples, uh, many hundreds, if not thousands of others, had trusted in Jesus. After the crucifixion and resurrection, you have uh, 5,000 on the a day of Pentecost who trust Jesus as their Messiah. You have 4,000 within just a couple of weeks of that that accept him as their Messiah. So you have many individuals that are saved, but the nation as a whole rejected him. And so the nation is going to be punished by God because as a nation they rejected him. And even the believers go through divine discipline. We've seen the same thing at the time of Elijah, that Elijah announced the, that it would not rain again until 
Uh, he said so, and even Elijah suffered through the drought that occurred over the next uh, next three years. Romans 11.26, a verse we looked at on Sunday morning. At the conclusion of Paul's discourse on God's faithfulness to Israel, he says, and so that is in this manner, all Israel will be delivered. That word, it, it comes from uh, uh, the Old Testament emphasizing physical deliverance. So all Israel will be delivered as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is the Lord Jesus Christ removes the guilt and the curse. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This isn't talking about taking away the sins at the cross. That already happened. This is talking about the removal of that judgment that occurs, that, that has, they've been under ever since they rejected Jesus as, as the Messiah. Uh, if it says, that's when I'll take away their sins, then the only solution, if you think that's soteriological, is that Jesus would have to die again. No, this is when he removes it. Remember, these people that go into the wilderness have already believed in Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't be down there. So they're justified individually, but they aren't just redeemed, or uh, excuse me, they aren't saved, delivered as a nation yet. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 says, Back up. I will pour out, pour on it, on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. It doesn't say they will look on me whom they pierced and they will believe on him. This isn't a salvation verse. This is a verse that occurs corporately when they realize the, as a nation what they did back in 33 A.D., and they look upon Jesus whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And Zechariah 13.1, In that day a fountain uh, will be opened for the house of David and for the... And for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity, there will be a cleansing of the nation from their sin. And then in Joel 2, 28 and 29, we read, And it will come about at this time that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And we've studied that. That is the new covenant terminology when at this point, when Jesus returns, he establishes and implements the new covenant with the nation Israel and pours out his spirit upon them. Then in Joel 2.30 and 32a, we read, And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. We'll see the same imagery when we get down to the end of Revelation. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls 
on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Hebrew word there isn't the Hebrew verb yasha, which we normally associate with salvation, which is the root of Joshua and Yeshua, Jesus. It is a different Hebrew word, and it has to do with physical deliverance from a physical calamity. And those who call on the name of the Lord, this same verse, Joel 2.32, is quoted in Revelation, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 10, uh, verse... 12, and focuses on, it's, it happens at the end of the tribulation period. So we come to the sixth event, the second coming of Christ, and Jesus Christ returns to physically deliver them at Petra. Isaiah 63, 1 through 3 says, Who is this who comes from Edom? See, he comes to, it's talking from the perspective of Jerusalem, who is this who comes from Eden with garments of glowing colors from Basra, the one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. I had this verse up up earlier. This is Jesus coming, leading the remnant of Israel that he has rescued in Basra and bringing them up to uh, Jerusalem. And this is the seventh event in the history as the Armies of the Antichrist will be destroyed. And in Joel uh, 3, verse 2, we read, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they divided up my land. Let all the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. Now, the valley that's down there behind Betty's shoulder is the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is also the Kidron Valley, and this is the area where this judgment on the nations will take place. You see a little better view of it in this picture. Over here on the left, you have the Mount of Olives. Up here, you see there's the gold dome, the Dome of the Rock. You see the wall here, which is the east wall on the Temple Mount. And this area in between, this valley in between, is the Kidron Valley. This is also the Valley of Jehoshaphat, where this judgment will take place. Zechariah 14, 3 and 4, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Um, And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. So the Jews who are being pressured by the armies of the Antichrist from the north are going to escape through this uh, valley that Jesus Christ will create when he splits the Mount of Olives in two, and they will head towards the Dead Sea for their uh, release. And this is where it will take place. That's the uh, one of the chapels they built on the Mount of Olives called Dominus Flevit, where the Lord wept over, over Jerusalem. And here's another shot of the Mount of Olives, and it is, will be split from left to right, and that will be the exit path for the Jews. And then we have the victory ascent, the eighth stage of the campaign of Armageddon, the victory ascent of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives. And this is where he will uh, finalize his victory, as seen in passages such as uh, Joel 3, 
14 to 17, and other passages as such. Revelation 19, 11 to 13 describes it this way. Hit it too many times. I saw heaven open and... There it comes. So I heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's how it ends at the second coming. Now, when we understand that scenario and that framework, then when we go to passages like the one we're studying in Romans 10, 9, and 10, we see that can't be talking about that can't be talking about personal justification. It is talking about the deliverance of Israel at that end time because of all the Old Testament quotes that we find there. It also shows how God is going to protect the nation, the woman who flees to the wilderness in Revelation uh, chapter 12. Now, next time, next time we'll begin the 13th chapter, which focuses on the next two personages in the tribulation period. The first beast we call the Antichrist, and the second beast, the false prophet. Now, Thursday night, we're going to get into some aspects of forgiveness again to try to lay down a little more background, try to lay down a little more understanding of forgiveness as a foundation for understanding what happens in Matthew 12 when Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin. So the folks who show up on Sunday morning who don't have the benefit of tonight or Thursday night are just going to have to end up with some brief summaries of some of this and or get the DVDs. But there's a lot that goes on just to understand Romans 10. And it's because Paul just pulls so many different passages out of uh, the Old Testament, and you have to properly understand all of their context and how it all fits together, or you just get lost. Isn't it fun? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to go through all these different passages and to uh, see how things will be brought to a glorious end as Satan is defeated, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the earth dwellers are destroyed at the end of the tribulation period and as Israel is finally saved and redeemed. Father, we pray that you would encourage us because we know that the power that you exhibit to bring Israel to salvation is the power that we have available, available to us every day in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.